Well, good morning. Uh, if we have not had a chance to meet, my name is Drew McCullough, and I have the honor and privilege of serving as a family pastor here at High Point Church, and I am happy to be here uh, gathering and worshiping with you here today. Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead, open it up to Psalm chapter 27. Uh, we are going to continue our series that we've been in over the past several weeks, walking through uh, various uh, different psalms. And I love the book of Psalms. Uh, a whole bunch of verses that I've memorized over the years come from the book of Psalms. Uh, but I love the book of Psalms because it's so full of uh, good, rich doctrine, but at the same time, it is full of just raw, real emotions and struggles, isn't it? Um, I think Pastor Ronnie, when he was with us a few weeks ago, I think he said this, but Tim Keller talks about the book of Psalms, and he says that the book of Psalms covers the whole spectrum, the whole wide range of emotions that we have in this life. Joy, sorrow, praises, uh, frustrations, and everywhere in between. And I was actually reading a book on suffering uh, last year, and in that book, uh, the writer is talking about how you might hear people talk about God, people talk about the Bible, people talk about Christianity and, and say, you know, Christianity, it just kind of ignores suffering. Like God just kind of wants you to like pretend like it's emotionless, you know, like it's just all like robotic. But the writer goes on to say the people that say that and think that, they completely must have skipped over the book of Psalms, not to mention so much more of scripture, but specifically the book of Psalms because it is so full of emotions and real hardships and struggles. And that will, that's what we see here in Psalm chapter 27. And in this Psalm, the Lord teaches us through David that when we know him and we trust in him, when we seek him, he enables us to be able to face even our worst fears. He enables us to be able to face our worst fears, not because he uh, we'll just remove every bad thing in your life, but because he enables us to be able to see our circumstance through a different perspective because he knows, David knows, that a fear of the Lord overshadows a fear of our circumstances. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna walk through Psalm 27, then we're gonna come back and we're gonna step back and look at and say, what does this mean for our lives here today? So before we get there, if you can stand up for the reading of God's word if you can't physically, I'm okay with that too. But we're going to stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 27, a psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. 
For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me uh, high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make a melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies." Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that never returns void, your word that is perfect and flawless, your word that is holy your word that is good for correcting us and rebuking us, teaching us, training us. And God, I pray that as we walk through the book, this chapter of Psalms, God, I pray that uh, it not be my words that be heard, but be yours. Uh, My words mean absolutely nothing, but God, it is your words that are, have the very power of God. And um, God, I pray that I decrease as I stand up here and teach and that you increase. God, help every single one of our hearts gaze upon your beauty this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. So as we said, this is a psalm written by David, uh, but we don't know exactly when David wrote this. Uh, It's believed to be somewhere between 1 Samuel chapter 16. That's when uh, Samuel, the prophet, the priest of God, anointed uh, David to be the next king of Israel. Somewhere between that and 2 Samuel chapter 2, that's when David actually took the throne of Israel and became king. It's believed to be in that time frame because in that time frame, David went through a whole lot of stuff in his life. Some good stuff, but also some really terrible struggles. Uh, on one hand, he, uh, that's in that time frame, he killed Goliath, right? The great giant, the Philistine, by the power of God, David killed Goliath. And, and Paul appointed David as a, a commander in the army of Israel. And because God's favor was with David, by God's grace and his power, David not just killed Goliath, he became a great commander in the army, conquered a lot of different enemies, won a bunch of battles. But because of all of that, Saul got really jealous. Saul was incredibly prideful. He knew that, that the favor of God was not on him. Favor of God was on David. David was appointed, anointed as the next king of Israel, which meant that, that uh, Saul's line of kingship was gone after him, didn't go to his sons. Not only that, he knew that David was incredibly popular among the army of Israel and the people of Israel because he was such a great commander. And Saul was like, I'm king, love me. <laughs> 
I should be popular. So what did he do? He put a hit out on David's head. I want David dead. People will be forced to love me more than him if he's dead, right? So he literally sends out search parties to search and find David to murder him. Because David has to go on the run. He has to go into exile, has to go into hiding because he's literally being hunted. And it's in the middle of all of that, hiding and running for his life, that he writes Psalm 27. And it's kind of crazy when you think about that context because right off the bat, David comes out and what's he say? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? I mean, I'm being hunted by the most powerful man in the nation, but what do I have to be afraid of? And then he says, verse three, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arises against me, I will be confident. And you think of that context, you might think David's a little nuts, right? There's a fine line between confidence and being stupid, Right, like an army is against you, David. Don't be a dummy. But David wasn't, he wasn't crazy. He wasn't uh, disillusioned. David just had a completely different perspective about his circumstances. His confidence, and when he says this, it's not found in himself. He wasn't thinking, hey, I just killed that giant Goliath. Bring on Saul. Bring on his armies. I'll take them all out. He wasn't thinking, I can hide better than they can seek. His confidence wasn't found in himself. What does he say? He says, the Lord is my light, my salvation, my stronghold. Therefore, I got nothing to worry about. I got nothing to fear. I love the words that he uses in that verse to describe the Lord. He says, first he says light, which is a metaphor for a whole lot of things in scripture right? But here, what he's talking about, he's saying, even in the most fearful darkness, in the most fearful darkness, God is the light that steps in and dispels the darkness, right? With darkness comes uh, uh, unknown, which comes fear. And darkness and light, they can't coexist, right? He's saying God is the light that steps in, gets rid of the darkness, I don't know if you've ever, when you were a kid, if you were afraid of the dark, uh, maybe some of you still are. No, I won't judge. Um, but maybe you have a kid who's afraid of the dark now. When, when someone is afraid of the dark, what do you do? You leave the doorway to the hall like a little open, right? So that light from the hallway comes in. That's what my parents did. You, you, you have a little night light you might put up in their room. It doesn't light up the whole room, but it's just enough light. Why do we do that? Because even that little bit of light that seeps in from the hallway, that light that that lights up, it's just a little night light, it lights up the darkness just enough to light up the unknown, to dispel the darkness, to take away the fear. And so that's what David is saying. He's saying, even though I'm in the middle of darkness, in the middle of chaos, as he says in Psalm 23, in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death, I got nothing to fear because God is my light that lights up the darkness. And then he says, God is my salvation. 
And that's a, uh, salvation is actually a military term that he uses there, and it means deliverance. So God is not just the light that dispels the darkness. He's actually also the God that delivers me out of it, right? I didn't say this last service, but it, it's like when, uh, even though you have that nightlight up there, if your kids start screaming and, and crying, what, what does dad do? What does mom do? They run in there and they grab them. They don't just light up the room and take away the darkness. They grab them. They deliver them. And then he says, he's my stronghold, meaning uh, he's a refuge, a place of safety. So he dispels the darkness, delivers us out of it, but then he delivers us to a place of safety, right? All three of them. But there's a word here that truly gives David his confidence. Does anybody want to take a guess what it is? Don't be, don't be shy. Thank you. You were here in first service. Tyler said, my. That's, that's right. The word my is actually what gives him his confidence, right? Because it is one thing to say God is light, God is salvation, God is stronghold, but that does me no good if he is not my light, my salvation, my stronghold. See, Charles Spurgeon, he was talking about this, and he, he was talking about a blind man. He says, you know, a blind man might know a whole lot about the light of the sun, right? Might know, have heard in school, have a master's or doctorate degree in sunology or whatever that is. What's, I don't know what a degree in studying the sun is, but he, has, he knows all about it. He talks to people about it. Like, hey, tell me what the sun looks like. Stare at it until your high, eyes hurt. But the problem is that the sun's light does the blind man no good because it's not his light. And so in the same way, it is one thing to say God is, but it is a much, much greater, more personal thing to say God is mine. This isn't a theoretical thing that David knew with his head. This was something that he knew deep down in his soul, something he experienced, intimacy with God. See, he wasn't closing his eyes to his circumstances. He wasn't uh, pretending they didn't exist. I'm sure we've all been there where something's going on in our life and we just don't wanna think about it. So we just like turn the volume up in the car a little bit higher. So we just don't, it doesn't think about it. We just hear music. We, we numb it with Netflix, right? But he wasn't doing that. He wasn't ignoring it and pretending it didn't exist. He had a different perspective. He saw his circumstances with a different lens. He saw his circumstances through the lens of his faith in who God is. Wasn't ignoring it. He was looking straight at it. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, I saw uh, when I was preparing for this, this sermon two weeks ago now, uh, I saw on Instagram someone shared a Charles Spurgeon quote, and it fit along perfectly with this. It says, it is a blessed thing when darkness below gives an eye to the light above. Spurgeon's saying it is a blessed thing when the darkness around us lifts our eyes upward to the light above us. Like that song we just sang a few minutes ago, Above the Storm, if you look at the lyrics, what it's talking about, it says that when the storm cloud comes in, 
We see the storm cloud, we, we see the darkness, we see the rain, we see the lightning, we see the thunder, or we don't see thunder, we hear the thunder. But what do we know? It says, you're raining still. We know right above that storm cloud, there's a sun that's still shining. We can look through that storm cloud and know it doesn't affect the sun. It can't. And in the same way, David is looking at his circumstances through his enemies, through the army encamped against him. And he sees the Lord who is his light, his salvation, and his stronghold. No matter how bleak things looked, he knew that the Lord was all he needed. And that's what he says in verse four. And verse four is kind of like the crux of the whole psalm. What he says in verse four, he says, the one thing have I asked of the Lord, that, that one thing will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, commentators actually disagree a little bit about what David's talking about there. Is he talking metaphorically about, man, I just want fellowship with the Lord? Or is he talking literally? He's literally in exile. Is he talking about literally wanting to be back at the tabernacle, at the tent, right? And we know, and, and David knew, that, that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. We can't escape his presence. We, he sees us everywhere we go. He is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But at the same time, in the Old Testament with the Jewish people, God gave them the tabernacle for a purpose. It was the, it was the place where his glory dwelt among his people, and so to the Jewish people, to David, there was a special experience of God's holiness, of his beauty, of his presence there in the tabernacle. So was he talking metaphorically, talking literally? Personally, I don't think it matters. I think the point's exactly the same. He's saying the one thing, God, that I need, that I desire, that I ask for, I just need you. And one Hebrew commentator, uh, I don't know Hebrew, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, praise the Lord for people who are, because this guy pointed out that the grammar that he uses there when he says one thing and then essentially that one thing I will seek after, the grammar there is incredibly intense, uh, showing like a singularity of purpose, like one goal. So it's essentially as if David is saying, God, the one thing, the only thing, the one and only thing, all caps, bold, underline. It's like when you're texting your friend and you want something to like really get something across and you like, you know, you hold the button and you send it with balloons or something. Like that's what David's doing. He's saying, God, my one and only thing is you. Now think about that for a second. In the midst of some of the worst circumstances that you can think of, He's literally being hunted. In the midst of that, he says, the one thing I need is you. He doesn't say my, the one thing I need is safety. The one thing I ask for, God, is victory. He doesn't say, God, uh, please send a miracle. He doesn't, he doesn't say the one thing that he needs is, is Saul's head. Like, wipe them all out, God. He doesn't say, God, change my circumstances. That's the one thing I need. He says, the one thing I need, I desire, that I seek after is fellowship with you. 
I want to know you. I want to be in your presence. I want fellowship with you because God, if I have you, then I have everything I need. And that's why he uses the language he uses. He says, why, why, why does he seek after this? What's the thing that he asks of the Lord? Why does he want to dwell there? I just want to gaze at the beauty of the Lord. He doesn't say, God, I just want, I want, to, I want, to, get, I want to get a little glimpse. I want to get a little taste. He says, I want to gaze at your beauty. He says, I want to inquire, which means to consider or to seek after. I want to inquire of you. You get a sense for David's like deepest affections here. He, he, David didn't just want uh, to know more about God. Of course he did. But he wanted to know God intimately. He, he didn't just want something from God. He wanted God himself. That was his one thing. He wants to gaze at the beauty of the Lord. I remember almost two years ago now uh, when our baby girl, Colby Grace, was born. And we went through several years of infertility. And then the Lord gave us this beautiful gift of Colby Grace. And um, I remember when she was first born, Brittany was holding her in her arms in the hospital bed. And we both are, we're just in tears, which takes me a lot to tear up. Uh, but we're both in tears, smiles on our faces, and we're just looking and gazing at this beautiful baby girl. And we keep like glancing over at each other and like looking back. We're just in awe of this beautiful girl and all that she represents, a gift from God. And uh, we still can't take our eyes off of her, right? Like we love to just sit at home and watch her run around. She chases our dogs around trying to grab their tails. She, uh, lately, she has done this thing where she has like, she's really into pens and markers and crayons and she'll carry around a little pad and she'll take her pen and she'll be standing there watching Curious George and like the writing, like she's taking notes about Curious George or something, right? We just love to watch her and see her smile and see her laugh. Why? Because we love her. She just, she just fills us up with so much joy because when we see her, we remember the goodness and grace of God. That's why we gave her the name Colby Grace, undeserved gift. And we just love to just see her and gaze at her beauty. And to a much, much greater extent, that's what David's saying here. He's saying, I just want to gaze at the goodness and the beauty and the grace of the Lord. I just want to, to, to uh, gaze at you, to know you, to focus on you, to study you, because God, I am in awe of you. Because you are just absolutely beautiful to me. You are everything I need. You satisfy my soul. As he says in, in Psalm 37, you are the delight of my heart. God, you are the one thing. I just want to gaze at your beauty. Because when I gaze at the beauty of the Lord, when I, when I gaze at him, when I seek him, when I trust in him, when he is my one thing, I am able to see everything else around me clearly. It gives me that different perspective. 
I know I'm safe. As he says, my, my head is held high. When I'm gazing at the beauty of the Lord, nothing can bring my head down. Nothing can make me fear. Nothing can fill me with shame and guilt. My head is held high. I have everything I need. And then in verse seven, the psalm shifts. It goes from, uh, it goes from uh, talking about God to talking straight to God in prayer. And he says, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face, which uh, seeking someone's face or, or to see someone's face is talking about uh, favor or fellowship. So he says, you have said, uh, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. Oh, God of my salvation. Now, at first glance, when you read this first part of this prayer, you might think, David, what in the world happened? Like you just went from being so bold, so confident. Who do I have to fear? And now you're over here saying, God, please listen. Uh, God, please answer me. God, don't hide, fra- uh, hide from me. Don't, don't, don't turn me away. Don't cast me off. What happened? Some big mood swings there. But, but really, isn't that the, the realness of the psalm? I'm sure you've been there before where you, you know something to be so true and you believe it and you hold on to it. You are confident of it. And then you, you open your eyes and all you see around you is like darkness and chaos and suffering, and injustice, and pain. But see, David is doing exactly what he said in verse four. The one thing I ask of the Lord. See, he knows that God is his light, and his stronghold, and his salvation. But he knows that that is only the case by a complete act of grace. He knows that he is unworthy, he is undeserving, But by grace, God shows him favor and God is his light. This isn't a prayer of David uh, freaking out. It's not a prayer of uh, mood swings. It's not a prayer of him forgetting everything that he just said and proclaimed. It's a prayer of unworthiness and humility. It's a prayer for grace and mercy. It's a prayer of faith. He goes in the first few verses of this proclamation of faith, and now he moves down into an incredible prayer of faith. And even in the middle of this prayer, we see God's incredible, incredible grace. In verse eight, you see that that God had invited David to seek his face. And David knew that no matter how much he desired to seek the face of God, to see the beauty of God, it was only possible by a complete act of grace. If God first, by grace, invites, if God first, by grace, reveals his face. And God is not in the business of turning away people when they seek his face, when he invites them and they seek his face. But then in verse nine, you see that he says, uh, he says, uh, don't cast me off, don't forsake me. And the phrasing there gives a, gives a sense of letting go, of releasing something. But what do you have to first do if you're gonna let go of something? 
Y'all were almost there. You gotta grab a hold of something, right? It's an act of grace. What David is saying in, the, in this prayer, he's saying, God, I'm, and as undeserving, as unworthy, as unholy as I am, God, by your grace, you have invited me to seek your face. You have awakened my heart to seek after you. And oh God, I am. Don't turn away from me now. He's saying, God, I know you are my light, my salvation, my stronghold. You have a hold of me. Don't let go now, God. I need you. I need you. These words were not a reflection of unbelief here. These are a reflection of David's faith in who God is. But then he makes this incredibly profound statement in verse 10. He says, for my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord takes me in. Now, the English translation there in the ESV, which is what I'm reading from, the English translation there is not very good. It's pretty bad. Uh, it, there's no evidence that David's mother and father forsook, for, uh, whatever the past tense of forsake is. Uh, they did not cast him off. They did not turn their backs on him. There's no evidence of that. The, again, if you look at the Hebrew, no Hebrew scholar, but people who are, they say if you look at the Hebrew, it actually gives a better sense, a better, uh, a better translation would be if or even though, even if, even when my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me in. Even then the Lord will take me in. And this echoes his confidence that he had in verse two and three. But this time he makes it really personal. It's, it's not just if an army encamps against me, if my, my adversaries are seeking to murder me. Now he makes it personal and he says, even if my father and mother forsake me. He takes the most natural, closest human bond that we can think of and he says, even if they turn their back on me, the ones who loved me, and cared for me and protected me and provided for me all of my life, even if they decide to turn their back on me, I will not fear. Because God, you are my light, my stronghold, my salvation. You care for me. You are enough for me. And actually back in the Old Testament, the culture was really a family-centric culture. And in order for a, a father and mother for the most part, to turn their back and cast off to forsake a child, the child would have had to do something incredibly egregious, just awful. And so it's not even just that David is saying, hey, if my mother and father just decide one day, they wake up and they just randomly decide to turn their back on me, it's okay because God, you won't. It's also as if he's saying, God, even if I do something so terrible and so deserving that my, my parents forsake me, you will not. Because you are rich in mercy and steadfast in love. One commentator, James Boyce, he pointed out that in this world, in our lives, one of the, the things that we desire the most is acceptance. Right? We want to be accepted by people, accepted by our workplace, accepted by organizations, accepted by God. The problem is we live in a world of rejection. Every single one of us we probably experience it or at least see it and witness it every single day. 
Parent for, uh, rejects child. Child rejects parent. Spouse rejects spouse. Friend rejects friend. Stranger rejects stranger. Boss rejects employee. And on and on and on and on and on. We live in a world of rejection. But even as David prayed, he knew that in a world of rejection, God is so gracious that in a world of rejection, God would not reject him. God would take him in. He knew that God's love is more steady, more secure than even the closest human bonds that we can think of. And I didn't say this last week in East Memphis, but this is, this is one of my favorite verses. This is the verse that drew me to teach on this psalm. Because the Lord brought me this verse, this psalm, when I was going through an incredibly, one of the hardest times in my life. And it had nothing to do with my mother and father. Uh, but because of the language that he uses here, using the closest human bonds that you can think of, you can really put anything into that phrase. Even if blank forsakes me, rejects me, casts me off, I'll still be okay. Because I have you, you take me in, you care for me. And God, you truly are enough for me. You satisfy my soul. It's an incredibly comforting, comforting word. And then he goes on, next few verses. He says, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. Literally violence to them is like breath. It's everything they do. I believe that I shall look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So after four verses of David focusing on God's grace, intimacy with God, God's goodness. Now he then turns his language to talk about his circumstances. Notice the order there. He first focuses on the Lord and then he turns his eyes to his circumstances. Tim Keller uh, did a, a sermon on Psalm 27 in the middle of a a uh, series on the Lord's Prayer. And at, at this part of the sermon, he, he said, you know, even, uh, even in the Lord's Prayer, we do get to, oh God, please, by your grace, give me my daily bread. Keep me from temptation. Deliver me from evil. But we only get to those things in our prayers when we first say, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. And that's what David is doing here in this psalm, is he's gazing up at the beauty of God, the goodness of God, and then he just glances down. Instead of gazing at our circumstances, because honestly, if we do that, that's how we're filled up with fear, and then glancing up to God, he gazes and then glances down in confidence. Because a fear of the Lord overshadows his fear of circumstances. And he says, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Considering what's going on around me. God, teach me your way. Don't, don't teach me my way. I'm a dumb dumb. 
Don't teach me my way. Don't let my way be done. God, let your way be done. God, let me, lead me in your way. And it reminds me of a, uh, a Psalm 86 in verse, in verse 11 of that chapter. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I will walk in your truth. Teach me your way. I wanna walk in your truth. The world will tell you like, oh, live out your truth. No, no, no. God, there is one truth and it is yours. Lead me in your way. And he says, uh, lead me on the level path. That doesn't mean like, hey, uh, level out my enemies, make it easy, take them all out. It means steady and secure. Because God, when I'm walking in your way, when I'm walking in your truth, I know that the path may not be easy, path may not be short, but God, I know it's secure and I know it's safe. I know it's level. And then he ends this prayer with, I believe that I shall look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, I'm not really sure what David meant by that part. Uh, I'm not sure. And a lot of commentators, again, just like the other verse, they're kind of on the fence of what exactly he meant. Uh, some, some people, like uh, Charles Spurgeon, they, they believe that he's talking about uh, heaven and the land of the living because the place that we are is more like the land of the dead. Like because of sin, death is still here. Because of sin, there's still suffering. We still have cemeteries. We still have hospital beds. There's still tears. There's still pain. He says, this is more the land of the dead. The land of the living is in heaven. But then others say, no, David is talking literally here. Like in the land of the living, during my life here on earth, I will look upon the goodness of the Lord. And I'm not sure which one he means. But either one, I think they're both true, aren't they? Because in heaven, we will literally be in the presence of God and, and looking and gazing at his goodness in the true land of the living where there is only life, there is only joy, no tears, no pain, no sin, no death. But on the other hand, no matter what our circumstances are here on earth, no matter how they turn out, if they turn out the way that I think they should or not, no matter what, it doesn't change the goodness and the glory of God. It doesn't change his beauty. He is not defined by our circumstances. Again, like the song, Above the Storm, that storm cloud does not change the sun, right? Has, has no weight, does not define the sun. The sun doesn't stop shining. In the same way, God's goodness continues to reign. David was making this huge statement of hope in the midst of these circumstances. He was confident in God's sovereignty and in his grace. God was not defined by David's circumstances. And then this last verse, verse 14, uh, the psalm shifts again. He goes uh, from proclamation to prayer, back to proclamation. He says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now, when he says wait for the Lord, he doesn't mean like, hey, sit back and relax just, hey, God, let, let me know when you're ready when to swoop in. Let me know when it's my turn uh, and I, I'll be in the waiting room chilling until, until you're ready. This wasn't a passive waiting. This was an active waiting. 
What that, what that word wait literally means is to look eagerly for. They were saying, seek the Lord, gaze at his beauty, trust in him, and then guess what? Your heart will take courage. I love the language where he says, let your heart take courage. Because there's this active waiting of seeking him, gazing at him. But then guess what? There's just this passive, let your heart take courage. Because when we gaze at the beauty of the Lord, it is just a, a natural response for our heart to just be filled with courage. He wasn't saying, hey, go up, pull up your bootstraps. You can be strong, be courageous. You got this, pat on the back, self-affirming. No, he was saying, no, no, no. Put your eyes upward and your heart will be filled with courage because a fear of the Lord overshadows a fear of your circumstances. And I think as David wrote this verse, he was doing two things. He was preaching to himself, urging himself, David, wait for the Lord. Let your heart take courage, David. But I also think that he was, he had in mind all of the people of God that would sing and pray and read this psalm, encouraging them and us that our only hope and only confidence in the midst of darkness is the Lord God Almighty. Wait for the Lord, be strong. Let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. So that's Psalm 27, and it is a beautiful psalm. It's incredibly comforting. It's also really convicting. Like some of those statements he makes, those are bold, right? Now, I can't personally exactly put myself in David's shoes here. I have never had evildoers out to assail me. Like that sounds like a comic book. I've never had evildoers coming to us. I've never had an army encamped against me. I've never had someone out to find me and murder me that I know of. I cannot put him, myself exactly in his shoes. I'm sure most of you are in the same boat. But I know that every single one of us, we can imagine the worst thing. We can imagine the thing that we are most fearful of. Maybe it's something that you've already experienced. Maybe it's something that you're just fearful of in the future. It can be a test result. It can be losing a loved one. It could be your child rebelling against you. It could be your spouse turning away from you. It could be losing that lifelong friendship. It could be not getting into the school that you want to. It could be losing your job, financial hardships, whatever it is. I want you, I wanna, I want you to sit there and, and imagine what that thing that you fear most, whether you've already experienced it or something you, it's, it's coming up, you fear it coming up. I want you to imagine that, that thing that you're most fearful of. And I want you to ask yourself, be honest with yourself, ask yourself, would I have the confidence to say, whom shall I fear? It's a tough question, isn't it? I uh, read a few weeks ago that, uh, I don't remember where, I can't give them credit, but I read in, in an article that fear actually plays a big purpose in our lives, a good purpose. 
because it goes on to say that what we fear most actually reveals what we desire most. In other words, that, that thing that we fear reveals what our one thing truly is. Because every single one of us has a one thing in our life. The one thing that we wake up and we dream about, that one thing that we spend all of our money on, that one thing that fills up our prayer lives, that one thing our schedule revolves around, that one thing that we look at and we say, I have to have that or I can't lose that because, because if I have that, then my life is complete, then I'm filled up, then I'm satisfied, then I have enough. That one thing I seek after day in and day out, every single one of us has a one thing in our lives. And I found out uh, two weeks ago now that uh, Paul Tripp, if you know me, big fan of Paul Tripp, uh, that Paul Tripp actually wrote a 52-day devotional on Psalm 27. And I haven't read it yet, but I did read an article he wrote about, this, uh, about the book. And in the article, he goes on and talks about, he says, uh, he listed all these different things. And he says, what is your one thing? He says, is it power? Life only has meaning if I have power and influence over people. Is it approval? Is it comfort? Is it your image, the way you look? Is it being de dependence? If, if, if this person or someone is there to keep me safe, then my life is okay. Is it independence? Just not having obligation or, or responsibility? Is it work? If I'm being productive, if I'm checking off my to-do list? Is it achievement? If I'm being recognized, getting promotions, is it materialism, wealth, and, and possessions? Is it, is it religion? If, if I'm going to church twice a month and serving every six months and I, and, and I pray this much and I read my Bible this much, then I will be okay. And then I, I will be accepted by all the people that see me there twice a month and I'll be accepted by the people that serve me and I'll be accepted by, by God who sees my good works. Is it religion or is it the opposite? Is it irreligion? Is it an individual person? If that person in my life loves me and is with me, I have everything I need. My life will never fall apart. Is it your family? That you, the one thing you seek after is to just keep your family together. You want it together so much, you're gonna hold it so tight and try to control everybody because it's the one thing you need. Every single one of us has a one thing in our life that we desire most, that we seek after. So the question we have to ask is, is what is your one thing? What is your one thing? And I don't ask that question to make you, hopefully you're sitting there and you're just like, Jesus, right? I don't, I don't want the fake answer. I want you to be honest with yourself and say, what is my one thing? What is that thing that is the delight of my heart. See, David was actually only able to say, whom shall I fear? Because his one thing was fellowship with the Lord. He just wanted that one thing that he sought, that he needed, was to be in the presence of the Lord, to have him, to gaze at his beauty. But church, here's the, beautif the beauty of this psalm. David had this right perspective, but he had it with limited knowledge. 
See, he saw the, the tabernacle as the, the, uh, the representation of, of God's glory and his goodness and his presence. It was all he knew. It's why God gave the Hebrew people the tabernacle. But the incredible news for us is that we, in 2022, we have been given a far greater tabernacle to look to. We can seek the beauty of the Lord in a completely different place. Because hundreds of years after David wrote Psalm 27, the Lord who was his light, his salvation, his stronghold, came to earth in flesh as Jesus Christ. It says in John chapter one, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt literally means tabernacled. It means the exact same thing. So the very glory, goodness, grace of God, presence of God, tabernacle, lived, dwelt among us, but not in a tent made of building materials this time. It was in a tent of flesh in Jesus Christ. So to gaze at the beauty of the Lord, we don't have to look at a physical tabernacle anymore. Hebrews 1 says, he, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making a purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, God says, if you want to seek my face, if you want to gaze at my beauty, look absolutely no further than looking at the face of my son because he is the exact imprint, the exact manifestation of my glory, me tabernacling amongst you. And then here on earth, Jesus said in chapter eight of John, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The same Lord that was David's light, his salvation, his stronghold, came and tabernacled amongst us and said, I am the light of the world. Seek me, follow me, gaze at my beauty, and I will be your light, your salvation, and your stronghold. Because even though that Jesus was completely innocent on earth, innocent among men, innocent before God. He lived the perfect life. Unlike David, he willingly gave himself up into the hands and the will of his enemies, his adversaries, his foes. And they brought false witnesses against him. But what did Jesus do? He said nothing. And instead of declaring him Innocent as he truly was, they declared him guilty and they mocked him and they beat him and they hung him on a cross. And it was there on the cross that God the Father did forsake the Son. It was on the cross that Jesus' cry was not heard. And it was on the cross that Jesus was turned away in anger. But it wasn't anger towards him. It was anger towards us and our sin. He took the very wrath of God that we deserve towards our sin on himself so that you and I, by grace, through faith in him, will never be turned away in anger. 
He was forsaken so you and I can be brought in so that we can hear those beautiful words, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He was cast off so that we don't ever have to worry about being let go of. Because Jesus says, hey, when you are in me, no one will ever pluck, me from, pluck you from my hand, ever. Not only will I not just let go of you, drop you, but no one can pry my hand open because I have a hold of you. His cry was not heard so that our cry of salvation in Jesus' name can be heard. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But it's not only that. Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus rose from the dead so that by faith in him, he doesn't just uh, tabernacle and dwell among us, but more than that, he can dwell by his spirit within us. And then it says, after a purification of sin, he, he, he ascended into heaven and he sat at the right hand of the majesty on high so that one day we too can be in his presence and gaze at his beauty and truly see the goodness of God in the true land of the living. That is the incredible news of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing more sure, more secure, and more satisfying than gazing on the beauty of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, your Lord and Savior. See, Psalm 27 and the gospel of Jesus, they echo the same message. That God has a love for you that will enable you to face anything. Because his love for you in Christ is all you need. His perfect love for you in Christ cast out all fear. There is no greater fear that we as unholy, undeserving, unworthy sinners have than standing in judgment before a holy, perfect God. But in Christ, through his work, by grace, through faith in him, that greatest fear we have is completely taken care of. It, it's it's what, what David says in, in this psalm that he says that we have, have been taken and we have been hidden in his shelter. We have been concealed under the covering of his tent because in Romans 8, 1, it says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We are covered with the blood of Jesus. We have nothing to fear. And later on in Romans 8, uh, Paul, he says, he says, if God is for us in Christ, who can be against us? Essentially, if God is for me, whom shall I fear? Can anyone separate me from the love of God? Death, life, height, depth, angels, powers, things to come, things present. Can anything, anybody? No. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that is for me in Christ Jesus. And knowing that and believing that and gazing at that changes the way that we see our circumstances around us. So if you're here today and you have been feeling overwhelmed, swallowed up by fear, by circumstances, I want you to know that you have a God who doesn't just, who didn't just make you, 
but he made you and he sees you and he knows you. And most of all, he loves you. And his love for you in Christ is all you need. It is your one thing. So seek him in faithful prayer. Open his word, gaze at his beauty and his goodness. Gaze at the beauty of Christ. He has, by his grace, invited you, seek my face, seek my face in the face of my son. Gaze at my beauty. Because when you put your faith in Christ Jesus, he is your light, your salvation, and your stronghold. Wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are, that in the midst of circumstances, God, it doesn't change that you're reigning still. God, I pray that this morning, in the midst of some of the darkest times, we can have confidence that our, the one thing that we need is to be in your presence. It's all I need. If I have you, I have everything I need. I am satisfied. I am secure. I can walk on a level path. And Father, this morning, I pray that you open the eyes of our hearts to gaze at your beauty, whether it's for the first time today, putting your faith in Jesus for the first time, or God, if it's just a fresh and a new today. Awaken our souls. Open the eyes of our hearts to gaze at your beauty. In Jesus' name, amen.